Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be delivered from the guilt of my sin and reconciled to God? That was the question that was really at the heart of the Christian Reformation of the 16th century. This is the question that's at the heart of the life of everybody, every person. And unfortunately, many either either never care enough to ever ask it, or, or when they do, they come up with the wrong answer. Well, the right answer is that we are saved by faith. But when we talk about faith and, and faith alone, we're not talking about faith by itself. We're not talking about having faith in faith. Or we're talking about, about having faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Really what we're talking about when we talk about being saved by faith alone is, as we just sang, justification. We're talking about being justified, being declared righteous by God. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Martin Luther said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article with which all of the other doctrines flowed. He said, it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist one hour. Justification by faith. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Last week we finished our, um, our study of the book of Leviticus. This week, being Reformation Sunday, we're beginning, a, I guess, a, a three-week um, doctrinal study of the importance of the Reformation in the history of the church and, and really in, in all of, of human or especially redemptive history, in fact, the importance of the Reformation. And so we'll be moving around the scriptures over the next couple of weeks and then, Lord willing, we will begin um, soon our study of the letters to the Thessalonians. But first, Romans chapter 3. Now, in the first couple chapters of Romans, we've been reading through this every week. We read chapter 14 earlier. But in the first couple chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, he explains that the Gentiles stand condemned before God because they have rejected his truth and did not see fit to acknowledge God, and so God gave them up to their sin. But then he says that the Jews also stand condemned because even though they had God's law, they couldn't possibly keep it. And and then we come to chapter 3 in which Paul declares that actually all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So let's read Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, Paul writes, Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
But if our righteous unrighteousness, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable for God, to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. That's a lot. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. That we might behold wondrous things about your law, about your word. Help us to understand what it means to live by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Martin Luther struggled with the question of how he could be declared justified, or we might say, what must I do to be saved? He struggled with that question really for more than 10 years. His, his question first developed, I mentioned this last week, his question first developed in, the, in July of 1505 when he was just 21. Um, I said this last week, he was caught out in a severe thunderstorm. 
and he was seeking shelter when actually he was nearly struck by lightning. And he claimed later that at the moment the lightning struck, he saw in the flash a snapshot of his friends in the terror of hell. And so in his desperation, in that storm, he cried out. In his fear, he cried out, Saint Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Despite the fact that his father strongly urged him to become a lawyer, that very week, Luther entered a monastery and he began his studies to become a Roman Catholic monk or priest. He was very diligent in his efforts to appease God and to secure his salvation. And so he prayed and fasted regularly. He deprived himself of, of any kind of worldly comforts and pleasures such as blankets when he went to bed. He went to confession every single day. And where the other monks in the monastery would spend five minutes or so confessing the sins that they had committed over the previous 24 hours, Luther spent hours every day in the confessional booth pouring out his heart, confessing his sin to a priest. He did that daily. He later wrote, If a monk ever got to heaven by monkery, it was I. Yet with all that he did, he felt as though he was still falling short of, of securing an assurance for his salvation. It seemed that no matter how hard he tried, all of his best efforts could not relieve him from the weight of the guilt of his sin. And so instead of feeling better about himself and his standing before God, he felt as though he was only facing regularly, daily, God's anger, God's wrath. Five years after that, that experience where he called out to St. Anne, November of 1510, he was sent to Rome for ministry. Remember, he was from Germany. And he thought that he might find peace with God there in what, what was known as the Holy City, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. He went to Rome. One of the teachings of the church was that sinners could receive some of the favor of God that, that dead saints had earned. And this favor could make them more holy in the eyes of God. And this was Luther's greatest desire. And so he went to those places where the relics were kept. Where the, where the fragments were kept, pieces of bone, locks of hair of, of some of the dead saints, alleged pieces of wood from the cross. He went to those places. He went there in order to earn God's favor. And yet still he felt alienated from God. In fact, after crawling on his knees up what is known as the Scala Sancta, the, the steps of Pilate's palace in Jerusalem that had been disassembled and shipped to Rome and reassembled as, as stairs. He crawled up his knees on those stairs, reciting the Lord's Prayer with every step. He reached the top and he said, who knows whether it is so? Who knows whether I have received any more favor than God from my, because of my efforts? He had no idea whether or not God was pleased with his work. In fact, he felt just as, much, just as much guilt and shame over his sin as he ever did. He felt none of God's love. 
He felt none of God's grace. He had no assurance that he was, in fact, a child of God. So over the next five years, he began to teach courses in biblical studies at Wittenberg University in Germany. And as he studied, he prepared to teach through the Psalms and Romans and Galatians specifically. And he started to wrestle with the phrase that kept popping up, the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Luther Luther thought that it meant God exacting his just retribution. He thought that it referred to God punishing sinners for the debt that they owed and that no one could possibly repay. But sometime between the years 1514 and 1519, Martin Luther had what is sometimes called his tower experience. While studying in the towers there of the Augustinian monastery in Wittenberg, he wrote these words. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated him and murmured against him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through sheer grace and mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. What must I do to be saved? Do I have to have just the right amount of good works? Do I have to have just the right amount of religious works or religious fervor? No. Salvation is simply believing in Jesus Christ as your Savior. We are saved by faith and faith alone. And our faith is in the justifying work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what we believe. We hold to the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, which is simply Latin for scripture alone. The word of God, that means the word of God is our highest authority. And this needs to be our starting point because what we believe about the Bible informs what we believe about everything else. See, the Bible is the lens with which we we view all of life. We believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. 
We believe that it was inspired by God, that it is God-breathed. It has God as its source. And because it has God as its source, it therefore is true and without error. And because it is from God, it is true and without error. It is also authoritative and sufficient. And so sola scriptura, scripture alone, needs to be the foundation and source for our understanding of all things pertaining to life and godliness. We must go to scripture to see how to be saved. The Apostle Paul, in this, uh, what I might call his, his great work of systematic theology, the epistle to the Romans, which we've been reading in that public reading of scripture, Paul addressed in Romans this issue head on. He picks up on the theme of the Old Testament and he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 and Paul writes these words in his introduction in chapter 1. Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting from Habakkuk. The righteous or the just shall live by faith. Those verses shook Martin Luther to the core. As we saw last week, the church taught that salvation was obtained through a series of good works. And, and these are what the church called the, the sacraments. Uh, infant baptism, confirmation, marriage, last rites, all administered by an ordained priest. And, and they were supplemented with regular confession and, and the Eucharist. Luther had believed all of those things and he taught those things his entire life. He knew no other message. And then he read these words. Let me read them again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? What we're really asking in, in sort of in, in theological terms is what must I do to be credited with the righteousness of God? How can I be righteous in God's sight? How can I be justified is what we're asking. <coughs> well, if we are to get right with God, um, then we must seek his righteousness. But we'll not find his righteousness in ourselves. It is of God, Paul writes in verse 17. That means it is from God. Listen, what, what verse 17, what Romans 1.17 is saying is that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. For it is in the death of Jesus that God revealed his righteousness by punishing sin and in the resurrection of Jesus, he revealed his righteousness by making salvation available to those who would believe. The gospel reveals a salvation that is by faith. Now, I've said before that salvation is, is sort of an umbrella term. So salvation is that, that moment that you trust in Christ as your Savior and are justified. 
It is, the, it is from there a life of growth and discipleship. That's our sanctification. And, and it is that time in the future, as we sang about in just that last song, it's that time in the future when sin and death will be no more, when we are glorified in heaven. So when we ask that question, what must I do to be saved? We're really asking, how do I be glorified? How do I become glorified? How do I get to heaven? How do I get rid of all the sin and death that is just all around? But the first step in that process is that we must be declared righteous by God. We must be justified. And just so you know, um, that doesn't happen at the pearly gates. There's no convincing St. Peter that you should be allowed in. By the time you get there, if that's how it works, which I doubt, you're not going to have to convince Apostle Peter to be allowed in. There's not going to be any of that. Now, when you study Romans, you essentially walk into a courtroom. Paul lays out in the first three chapters that, that both Gentiles and Jews, so everyone, stands guilty before God. That's what he summarizes in chapter 3, verse 23, when he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile have been declared guilty and have been condemned. That's actually what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, by the way. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, we're going to focus for the rest of our time this morning on really verses 20 uh, to 26 of Romans 3. So I want to read that again and listen very carefully. Romans 3.20, just 20 to 26. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's, for, uh, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult passage in a difficult book. Um, remember that even, even the Apostle Peter said that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand, and this is case in point. But if we walk through this slowly, you'll be able to see what he is saying. See, Paul is saying that there is a righteousness of God. There is a righteousness which has God as its source. A righteousness, he says, that we can have through faith in Jesus Christ. So true, all have sinned. That's our deepest problem. That is our problem as humans. All have sinned. We can do nothing about that on our own. 
Yet, if you believe, you can be justified, he says, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So, three things that we need to understand about justification. First, the source of justification, being declared righteous, the source of that is the grace of God. The source of our justification is the grace of God. That's what verses 20 to 22 are saying. It is impossible to make yourself righteous in the eyes of God, even by obeying the law. But, but now, in the, in the New Testament era, God has made he, known a, a righteousness that comes from Him through Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is available to all who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, when we try to answer the question, what must I do to be saved, with something like, be nice, or be a good person, or obey God's law, or do good to others. If we try to answer that question with anything like that, we're fooling ourselves because there is none righteous. No, not one. We cannot declare ourselves righteous. We need, to, we need to stop giving one another a false sense of assurance. Preachers cannot declare you righteous at your funeral. Yet, preachers try this all the time. Preachers will stand up at a funeral and lie. He's in heaven now. How do you know that, Pastor? Because he was a good person. He used to sit right over there. He used to sing in the choir. He gave me Bob Evans gift cards at Christmas. We cannot declare ourselves righteous by doing good. Well, then how is salvation possible? How can we be declared righteous? If we can't do it and the preacher can't do it, nobody else can do it, how can we be declared righteous? It is possible only if God does the work in us, and that's what grace is. Verse 24 again. And are just for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We didn't, we didn't seek righteousness from God. Look up again in verses 10 and 11. I read this before, and it's pretty powerful. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's only possible to be saved if God does the work in us, and that is grace. No one seeks after God. If it were not for the grace of God, we would all be dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us in here. The source of our salvation, the source of our righteousness, the source of our being declared justified before God is God himself. That right there should drive us to our knees in worship. That God himself would say, smack the gavel down and say, justice has been served. You do not need to pay the penalty for your sin. 
That should make us worship. That God would look at you knowing all of the baggage that you carry. Knowing all of the sin that so easily entangles you, me, all of us. That God would would look at us knowing that we would try to save ourselves. That God would give you the gift of his righteousness. That right there should cause our hearts to worship. The source of your justification, the source of your salvation is the grace of God. And the ground of your justification is the work of Jesus Christ. The source is the grace of God and the ground or the basis of your justification is in the work of Jesus Christ. Listen again to verse 25. So, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. The ground of our justification, the basis of our justification is Jesus. Paul says in verse 24 that the gift of justification is given through or on the basis of the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So sometimes people have asked me, and maybe they've asked you, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't couldn't God have just simply wiped away our sins without sending Jesus to die on a cross? Couldn't he have just simply said, don't worry about it? The simple answer is no, because sin is such an affront, such an offense to our holy God that the wages of sin is death. This has always been the case. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death. The only just consequence for humanity's rejection of God or disobedience of God is death. That's the only just consequence. That's what happened back in the garden. That's why why Noah had to build an ark, because God, in His grace, preserved a a family while at the same time destroying sin, or much of it. And and that's what we deserve. But God. But God sent Jesus to take our punishment. Jesus didn't have to die, you do. Jesus didn't have to die for my sin. I am supposed to die for my sin. But God, because God is rich in mercy, He put forward His Son as a propitiation, as a, as a substitutionary atonement to pay the price of our atonement for us. Because of Christ, because God is rich in mercy. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he took your sin on himself, paid the penalty for my sin, and he put his righteousness on us. See, when God justifies us in Christ, at the moment of your salvation, an instantaneous transaction occurs. And it has two elements. There's a subtraction and an addition. 
And on the subtraction side is, is forgiveness. Our guilt is taken away. Romans chapter 4 verse 7 indicates that, that all of our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered. Our sin is gone. Listen, the, the, the gospel message is Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He, Paul says that there, but it doesn't stop there. Because Paul also explains in Colossians 1.14 that in him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, so the moment you are justified, the moment you are saved, God takes away the guilt of your sin. Now that that doesn't necessarily mean the guilty feelings. It means the actual legal standing of guilt. You've been, it, it has been removed. Often people, even, even after they are saved, they still struggle with feelings of guilt. But the legal guilt is gone in God's eyes. On the addition side, so the guilt has been subtracted, on the addition side of justification is what is known as imputation. This is Christ's righteousness, his, his pure, legally innocent and blameless standing that is imputed or it is, it is reckoned to you. It is like we have put on Christ's righteousness like a, like a white robe. It's credited to our account. So for those who believe... Because of Christ's death, we are declared by God to be not guilty. And because of Jesus' righteous life, because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, we are also declared not only to be not guilty, but actually to be innocent, even righteous. His righteousness is given to us. This is more than just mere forgiveness. Faith in Jesus Christ unites us to him so that we can freely receive his righteousness. This is our glorious inheritance. Listen to Paul's prayer for the, for the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. Just listen to what he prays. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immense immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is, the, this is the grounds or the basis of our justification. It is the work of Jesus Christ. God, God can justify us because of who Jesus is and what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, just consider those three words, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what many have called that great exchange. He became our sin and guilt and we received his righteousness and we receive it by faith alone. There's nothing that any of us can do to earn Christ's righteousness. It is only through faith. And this is the means of our justification. The means of our justification is faith alone. So the source of our justification is the grace of God. The grounds or the basis of our justification is the work of Jesus Christ. And the means by which we receive our justification is faith and faith alone. So it's not doing, it's believing. There are no religious or or moral hoops that you need to jump through in order to be justified. You will not be justified by being properly religious by wearing a suit and showing up to church on Sunday. You will not be justified by any of those things that you can do. You cannot be justified by being a good person. God will will not reward you with Jesus Christ's righteousness for your dedication to church attendance or in feeding the homeless or any other work. We are saved by faith alone. And we need to remember that faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is an important distinction. Faith is not the, the grounds or the cause of your justification. The cause of your justification is Jesus Christ. That is who saves you, not your faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the instrument, the channel, we could say, by which we are saved. By believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Faith rests in Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Right? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So, Biblical faith has three elements, knowledge, belief, and trust, right? Faith has three parts, knowledge, belief, and trust. So in order to have faith, you must know the gospel. In other words, you had to have heard it. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17, very famously, Paul says, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in, whom, in, uh, in him of whom they've never heard? 
How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, faith has to start with knowledge. It has to start with hearing the word of Christ. We hear the gospel. R.C. Sproul said one time, he said, I cannot uh, have God in my heart if he's not in my head. Before I can believe in, I must believe that. So faith starts with hearing. It starts with being aware. It starts with someone telling you or you telling someone else. But it doesn't end there because many people are aware of the scripture and yet don't believe it, right? Right? Many people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet say, oh, that's a nice fairy tale. Mere knowledge of God does not mean that we have faith in God. Not only must we be told, not only must we know, it also must contain belief. It's possible to know the content of your Bible really, really well and still be lost. You must actually agree with it. You must actually believe it. You must believe that it's actually true. John Wesley of Methodism fame. John Wesley was converted in 1738. But before his conversion, he'd been a very active preacher, very involved. He he had already founded Methodism by the time he was converted. He knew Christian doctrine. But it had not affected him on a personal level. He believed in a sense, he knew, but he'd not trusted in Christ. And so one one night, he went to a small Bible study where where someone was was reading Luther's preface to his study, his commentary on Romans, just reading the preface to his commentary on Romans. And he was converted by hearing the preface. He wrote of that experience, John Wesley wrote this, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change of God which works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So, we need to have knowledge of the gospel. We, we need to have heard it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and we know that, but we must also believe that. We must agree with it. We must believe that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. But we also can't stop there. Because James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and shudder in absolute fear and terror. They know that God is real. They know the stuff in the Bible has happened. Satan believes that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one comes to the Father except through him. Satan believes that. He knows that that is true. But it certainly doesn't save him. Mere knowledge and assent to the truth doesn't save us. The third, we must have this third element of faith as well and that is trust. We must know, we must believe, and we must trust. 
This kind of trust is a commitment. It's the point at which we move from, from belonging to ourselves to belonging to Christ. Or to put it in the language of the New Testament, Romans chapter 6, verse 18 says that we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. That's part of the great exchange. It's when we can say, as Thomas did, when he saw the risen Christ face to face, we can say, my Lord and my God. That, that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Trusting in Christ as Savior and God through faith in Him alone. Now, I believe that there are likely people in this room who are trusting in their own righteousness. People are hoping to justify themselves. But if you don't understand anything else, if all of the big words that I've used are lost on you, don't miss this. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you will be saved by faith alone. Know him Believe in him, trust in him. That's the call of the gospel. And by the grace of God, because of the death, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be saved by faith alone, by believing in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have sent your son to take away the penalty for our sin. That for all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, who all who, who have heard now the gospel message, maybe have heard it for years, who have believed that, that, that you have raised Christ from the dead, that Jesus went to the cross for our sins, that he was buried on the third day according to the scriptures, that he was, that he was raised again Father, that we believe, we've heard, we believe. Lord, I pray that we would trust that these things are true, that salvation comes through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith. Build up our faith today. For those who have already believed, Lord, remind us of this simple truth. That we might share the gospel with our friends and our coworkers as we as we move into the holiday season and we have christmas parties and family get-togethers and whatnot that we would be quick quick to share of our faith that we would go and make disciples that we would proclaim the good news of jesus christ father we are so thankful that we can be saved from our sin, that we can be made just and righteous in the eyes of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.